Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. All right, we're not going to torture you that much longer. So, uh, first of all, welcome to the nose. Let me tell you, I'm sort of a big believer in, in and a public radio for the most part isn't, but I'm a big believer in just telling you what's going on. So, we've had a lot of trouble pulling this show together in a lot of different ways, including the fact that yesterday we, with the nose, you know, we tried to sort of come up with topics that people really want to talk about, and it was kind of like a car that wouldn't start. It would just go, we would come up with these topics, and we'd go. And they wouldn't quite uh, click over. And, and so that was a problem. Then one of our panelists, Vivian Martin, has a very, very bad cold today. Uh, John Dankosky has bravely uh, come off the bench here. But the thing was, the reason it was great to pull him off the bench is that we had settled on one topic, and he was the perfect panelist for it anyway. So, um, and it has to do with this song that is still clattering in the background here. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got all kinds of problems, and the computers wouldn't work 10 minutes before the show. There's all these things going wrong, but I sort of feel like this might turn out to be a really fun show. Uh, so first of all, let me tell you who's here. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is a scholar of modern literature. John Dankosky is executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and the host of The Wheelhouse and next on WNPR. James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. And as an extra... <laughs> As an extra treat, if you're listening live during this 1 p.m. hour, we're also broadcasting live on Facebook, on Facebook Live. Uh, you can listen to the show and watch Kyone Wolf run the board, which 15 minutes ago would have been a lot of fun. It would have looked like <laughs> one of those Star Trek episodes where they basically are not going to make it, you know. Um, but uh, anyway, if you have any questions, you can share them on that Facebook video. It's actually on our page, the Colin McEnroe Show page. And then I think we shared it a couple of other places. So the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook, that's where. And you can sort of see a live control room feed uh, featuring Kyone Wolf and anybody else who's still in there. So the topic that we really did kind of get excited about was a, a piece by Terry Teachout, uh, who's a critic. He lives in northeastern Connecticut. I think he may be listening right now. It's in Commentary Magazine, not a magazine I read very often. Um, and it's a, he's essentially reviewing a book called Never a Dull Moment, which is about the um, classic albums of 1971. But being Terry Teachout, he kind of goes um, off on a little bit more uh, of a discussion of rock music itself and, and whether or not rock music has very much staying power. I mean, maybe pulling, you know, a few things like the Beatles out of the equation and, and then just sort of like, what is this stuff? And, and he writes... For my part, though, I am struck by how little of the rock to which I listened so avidly as a teenager is interesting to me today. This is especially true of the classic albums of 1971 that are cited in Never a Dull Moment, most, most of which I have since come to find embarrassingly jejun. 
Not that many people even use that word, Zuzu. It's like just to be able to use it. <laughs> hey, that's out of a Woody Allen movie. That's right. Yeah. Woody, Woody says, what do you mean? I'm one of the most June people I know. Uh, who now listens to, say, America, Jethro Tull's Aqualung, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Nash and Young's Four-Way Street, Yes is Fragile, The Doors, L.A. Woman, Elton John's Madman Across the Water, Pink Floyd's Metal, or Janis Joplin's Pearl for any possible reason other than nostalgia. And so it kind of got me thinking about this, whether or not – I mean one of the things Teachout points out is that rock was this genre that not only flourished from, say, 1965 to 1990. I mean obviously it predates 1965. But it not only flourished starting around 64 or 65, but it killed everything else. Nothing else could live uh, in the shade, in the shadow of rock. All other uh, you know, vegetation had to die. Um, and so what if it actually wasn't very good? Like on, on balance, not that there aren't some wonderful things in it, but what if on balance it wasn't all that good? So that's where we find ourselves beginning here anyway. And I have lots to say about that, but that's a very dangerous thing for a host to say because I want to hear the panel about it. Um, James, one thing I'll ask you is, I mean, one possibility is it was never meant to be any good permanently. That, you know, right now the radio dial is dotted with these classic rock stations playing Bob Seger songs you know, that that nobody should have ever imagined that they would be any good or that anybody would like them, although people, in fact, still do just from imprinting? Well, I think that one of the things that was happening then was that it was possible for rock to exist in a universe which was like lots of people were listening to the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that affects a lot of culture. Uh, it, it's affected movies, too. That Around that time was just the beginning when people were starting to sort of fork away from mainstream and starting the, the, the rock was starting to break out in different directions. But at the time, I think it was sort of much more of a kind of, I, I don't know, sort of soundtrack of life shared experience to me that at that time it meant something different. And so it was kind of overwhelming and it did take over completely. And now we look back at it and it seems, I agree that there's a lot of stuff you wonder, why did you, you know, have this enthusiasm for it? But it, but it is part of what you were experiencing at the time and lots of people did. I'm wondering now with the attitude that people have now and the, the sense that they have now of what music means and how... Uh, incredibly fragmented it is in many, many directions that it, how, what will people look back on, say, 30, 40 years from now and say about what we're listening to now? It's very different. It's a very different sense of what, you know, rock music represented something that was an era, a certain thing. It was, you know, sort of started uh, coming post-World War II and an enormous economic expansion and a shared experience where everybody was doing many of the same things around the world and American culture was spreading very rapidly around the world. All sorts of things were happening in sort of this massive tidal wave that just isn't true anymore. Um, John, I'm just going to let you react. I could pose a question, <laughs> but I know you have much to say. Well, I, I think part of what uh, the Teach Out essay is is asking me is is about nostalgia, and I know you you had uh, mentioned this earlier, Colin. This idea of how much of of how we view the songs or the bands that he mentions here, or the many others that we may see as higher art than perhaps Jethro Tull's Aqualung. How how much is it that we're looking back with some sort of a nostalgia, or in you know my not original idea that there really is something about music that moves us when we're fourteen or fifteen or sixteen years old, and that may stick in our brains because it's meant for the 16-year-old and then is meant to be 
embedded in there for the rest of our lives. It's never meant to go away. So it doesn't matter if Aqualung is great. It matters that Aqualung was great for a moment when I was 16. It'll never really quite go away. And because of that, I think it's different than a lot of other art. I I see some movies that I see as very dated from the 1970s, and I see some movies that I see as exactly what I remember them to be and, and, yeah. in, and in, incredibly modern. Um, music, for some reason, it occupies a different place for me. If it's something I loved when I loved it, I'll always love it. <laughs> so uh, Rebecca Castellani is, is but a child. Um, and, and so um, you might be expected to be wrinkling your nose about all of this stuff. But in fact, you seem to have a very different relationship with music from the time. I mean, one of the things Teachout says is rock is essentially dead right now. It doesn't really uh, have the kind of hegemony that it had before. Hip hop has become much more important, much more dominant. Uh, whatever rock ever was, it, it doesn't blot out the sun the way that, that it used to. Um, and and Implicit in that is a rejection of rock by your generation. But it feels I feel as though you haven't completely rejected it. No, quite the opposite. I personally don't feel like I connect to much contemporary music. It has to be really special. Like I can listen to parts of Beyonce's Lemonade and really feel what she's feeling. But I don't get that very often. It has to be something really special. Whereas my relationship with classic rock always had this almost mythological experience to it. Like, it was bestowed upon me by my elders. Like, here's this nugget of culture for you, young child. May it, you know, cause your brain to explode. And it ended up being something that carried past my youth. So my father and I used to listen to classic Beatles albums, and my mother tried to get me to listen to a lot of ABBA, which I did willfully. And so I had this, like, very bizarre sort of amalgamation of different classic, you know, rock, and then you get into the disco and all that. But what I took away from it was even when I was in college, we would have these conversations about mostly the Beatles where we would exchange lore. It was, did you know Martha, my dear, has written about his Paul McCartney's dog? Did you know the whole saga of Patty Boyd? And it was this sort of imbued with this mysticism and meaning that I don't particularly get from contemporary music. So what are the things – I mean, I don't know, James. I tend to look at the world, as I would imagine that you do, a lot of times through the lens of movies. And one of the many things I was thinking about today is a movie that probably you're the only person in this room who might have even seen. It's a movie called Outside Providence. It's an uh, obscure Farrelly Brothers uh, movie. It uh, takes place, uh, I think, in the 19 – well, it must, have take, must take place in the 1970s. Uh, I think it might have been made in the 1980s. And, uh, and Alec Baldwin is this kind of struggling father. He's kind of this tough guy uh, whose wife has died. He's trying to bring up these kids. It's not going that well. But there's this moment, and it's the moment where you're sort of told that this character, this father played by Alec Baldwin, has a heart of gold in there somewhere. It's Christmas. It's a very rundown, shabby little Christmas they're having. I'm, re- I'm reconstructing this from memory. I may get a lot of details wrong, but I do remember at this one point, he kind of pulls out Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which is a double <laughs> right. its a double album, and he's sprung for it he, with money he doesn't have. I, I think it's a double album, so it's kind of costly. And he, he says something like, people say this is pretty good, you know, and he hands it to the boys who I, I think are quite, quite happy to, to get it. Although, to me, and I don't know what the Farrelly brothers' take on that is. To me, I'm looking at an album that rem- that embodies the moment at which Elton John became a much more musically flaccid uh, presence, you know, that a lot of the energy that I'd really <laughs> enjoyed w- was gone and that, that, that the kind of the problem with rock and roll, I mean, it's, it's the album that has Candle in the Wind and Benny and the Jets and, uh, and obviously Goodbye Yellow. Well, actually, let's play. We'll play a little bit of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. When I gonna come down 
All right. Well, so I just unpacked my attitudes towards this. The one that had preceded the, this was Honky Chateau, which had Honky Cat and Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's, the latter of which I really do regard as you know, one of the songs really worth saving from, from that song. era. But I felt like that, I don't know what the Fairley Brothers, it's, it's impossible to know these things. You know, the albums in 1973, that movie's in 1988, we're sitting in 2016. Our ability to sort of get any kind of platonic view of this music, you know, where we can sort of say something the way that we could say about, you know, Ina Klein and Nacht music or something, <laughs> is, it's almost, maybe it's impossible. I think it really is. A one. I mean, the, the big thing, which I mentioned before, is this shared culture thing, and that 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 a uh, an album like this and this music could actually be a signal to people in a movie, mm. and it actually brings in a whole sort of universe of its own that tells the audience what's going on here and is making a point. I think that probably is much much harder to do that now. Uh, certainly in movies, you can't really. Uh, use that same sort of um, symbolic quality of of music. But the other thing that that strikes me about it, too, is that there's this... um, When rock music starts out, it it has a sort of different kind of quality. It's a a kind of um, something that grabs people and you feel that it's a societal movement and this is... You know, young people are listening to this and this is... It hasn't been grabbed by commercial exploitation yet. And then there's this... Inflection point, which I think uh, this this album that has that sort of quality about it, that it this suddenly begins to be big business, and that the big business is driving it, and therefore it becomes a symbol of something else. And if it's used in a movie, you've got to be careful what you're actually saying, what you're what you're actually trying to get across with it. If it's a small market movie, and it's somebody who's really like the Farrelly Brothers can get away with it. Um, Put it that way. Wolfie, while that song was playing, uh, typed to me, I feel like I'm at the dentist. Um, and I think <laughs> no, we know that's it's just not fair. That's not – I mean, it's uh, – here's the thing. Here, here's the thing. It's – okay, you, you were doing the, the waving back and forth. It's a, it's a nice song. It's not a great song. The, Elton John and Bernie Taupin wrote great songs, and some of them, I, I think you, you mentioned Mona Lisa's and Mad Hatter's, the Honky Chateau record is a, is a beautiful record. Um, he calls out here uh, Madman Across the Water as one of the, the 1971 greatest hits that does not, in his mind, stand up. But this is something that is echoed constantly in music that people write today. I... I I love David Rawlings. He's the guitarist with Gillian Welsh, and he has his own band called the David Rawlings Machine. His latest record has Madman Across the Water string arrangements all over it. People love this stuff. They gravitate. This. There's a reason why it still exists, Terry Teachout, who's been on my program before, <laughs> because there, a lot of this is really good. Some of it is schlock, but that's okay. Although, before I go to Rebecca on this, yeah. I think the point you're making is really important, which is this music, I think, stays vital when it's repurposed and reused. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, I s- circulated at the last minute a clip uh, of Ed Sheeran doing uh, his own version uh, uh, was of Stevie Wonder's I Was Made to Love You with just an acoustic guitar and a foot pedal clo- uh, controlling a click track and some vocals. And it's riveting. Yes. It's, it's, and it's I want to watch that more than I want to listen to Stevie Wonder. And I love Stevie Wonder. Well, and when a band decides at the end of its set that it's going to do one last encore piece and they decide to do a cover that's a little unusual usual. You, I, I remember seeing one of my favorite artists do an Al Green song completely out of context, and it was my favorite moment of the night because it, it, I, we could all sing along. We didn't know the words to all the other songs, but we knew the, the words to that song, and I think that that's another piece of it. It's repurposing it to 
call up something in us that we remember standing in a room, waving, you know, having a beer in our hand. Rebecca, I want you to say whatever it is that you want to say, but I also want to ask you about this because when James was talking, I was thinking, and this may be one of the reasons that music today doesn't really kind of locate you in the way that maybe some of this other music does. I, you know, you can make the argument that music has increasingly become just that, a kind of signpost. I mean, Blister in the Sun, I'm going to get some people really mad right now, but <laughs> Blister in the Sun is not a good song. No. But, but, but if it appears in a movie like Gross Point Blank or something like that, right away you know exactly where you are. You know who wanted to hear that song in the movie and what kind of person that person was. That increasingly, you know, I mean, John Cusack, to use another John Cusack movie in High Fidelity, he says, right. you, you are what you like. And so that starts starts to become just a way of identifying someone, which is, I think, pretty far removed from what music is supposed to be. No, I agree. I mean, I think the signposting effect is very much, you know, in play with the soundtrack to a lot of these movies. I just watched the movie Bottle Shock and I would say 90% of the theme of the movie was curated around the music, you know, locating me exactly where I was. Okay, I'm in California, now I'm in France, and that was done more with music than anything else. Um, But I do think that what appeals to me about this music is less that than it is the quality of the music itself. I think that you guys were lucky to grow up in a generation where you were given, and I was listening on the radio on the way over here, and I was, you know, scanning through stuff, and though there are very many catchy beats and drops in modern songs, they repeat over and over and over. So my friends always gave me grief in high school. I had this reputation for not being able to listen to more than 30 seconds of a song. Whereas Cream's White Room came on and I listened to the whole thing. Dire Straits Sultan's Swing came on and I listened to the whole thing. So there is more of a musical storytelling involved. And yes, it, it harkens back to a time that even my generation is nostalgic for, though we haven't lived through it. You know, there is that that treatment of the 70s and the 60s where we look at it through you know, these rose-colored glasses, like that, that was the groovy time and everyone was like free love and, and we live in this time that's so fraught and serious. and and I want to hear White Room so bad now. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is if you turn on the radio, what you'd hear is wonderful tonight. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's true. That, that is true. So that maybe that's sort of part of the problem. Well, you know, James, um, High Fidelity is a book and then a movie. That's about curation, right? I mean, right. It's, a, it's about sort of people who don't have or have chosen not to have the kind of digital resources that people have now for curation, who, right. who, who I think that they have all admitted to a certain degree that what's coming out of the speakers of the radio is, isn't trustworthy, that, that really what you have to do is make this incredible, incredible effort to make sure that you, you don't listen to dross, uh, that you listen to, you know, only the best. And, 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 That's sort of never been the way that corporately music has been packaged and sold. No, that's true. And I think that – but there's something uh, larger in that. I mean movies use music as a kind of quoting – but art generally quotes all the time. I mean satirical art, uh, paintings. I mean they they take these images or these implications or memes if you like that that are – really um, intended to be discovered, and they give a clue to exactly what what's happening here. And it can be a, a bad atmosphere. And High Fidelity, just the very title, uh, I, I mean, people of my generation, when we were growing up, High Fidelity meant something. There was actually a High Fidelity store you'd go to where instead of listening to a crappy-sounding radio, you'd actually go and spend a lot of money to buy a piece of equipment that was high fidelity and then stereo and so on. And so 
Um, it, it, it was harkening back to that, but there's something else too. I, I mean, Rebecca, I think, touched on this too about looking back at some of this stuff. That that an album, a 12-inch album, which had, you know, 6 to 10, 15 songs or whatever, that was kind of like a compacted uh, uh, experience. People actually put the record on and they listened to the record and they might listen to one track, but very often they would listen to a whole thing. And so the concept of listening to a long song, for example, that took up the whole side of an album, that was something that was an artistic experience in itself. It's no. intentional. There, yes. There's albums as intention as opposed to music now, which is mostly released as singles or EPs. Exactly. And this was an experience yeah. where you sat down and listened to it. And I collect albums and still listen to them for that exact yes. reason. Is it's an experience of listening. All right. This is a perfect That's- segue. All right, John. going to love this show. We can't, we can't go through all the <laughs> movements of it, of its sweet-like structure. Uh, well, I don't mean to throw you into the waters with yes, because, I mean, I bought that album and, and thought it was very important and went through all of it. But, I mean, first of all, to Rebecca's point, it was also an album. Yes, very much an album. And the way it was constructed for those of you who maybe only heard this as a single on classic rock radio, <laughs> the way this album was constructed is there was a series of kind of inscrutably weird songs with lyrics that you couldn't quite comprehend. And in between those songs, each member of the band had a little solo. So there is a, a really weird Cans and Brahms thing that Rick Wakeman did. And there's a beautiful little guitar solo that Steve Howe did. And there was a multi-layered vocal thing that John Anderson did. And the late great bassist, Chris Squire, who just died within the last year, who was really the driving force behind this band. They all had these little things, and you could only really listen to it as a whole. Now, here's the thing. If you go back and listen to this album start to finish right now, and maybe you don't really think about it for a while, and you just listen to it, it's really, really hard to listen to. I mean, it's it's difficult. The lyrics are just impossible. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But again, I'll go back to this. Listen to it backwards, maybe. You can listen to it backwards. But here's the thing. There is something about the brains of certain 16-year-old suburban kids, and that's who I was. And this happened about 10 years before I was that age, that it registered something. Uh, to what you were saying, Rebecca, it wasn't just a song on the radio that was two minutes and it was over. It had all these multiple parts. And I was trying to learn to play them on the drums, and my friend was trying to learn to play them on the keyboard. And it was something that allowed us to stand out from a group of people in our high school who didn't listen to music like that at all. They listened to driving rock and roll music and ACDC. And so that will always be with me as something that is important. It's kind of magical. It's kind of stupid, but I know that. And I'll go back and listen to this and with a little bit of a smirk, but it's still valuable, Terry Teachout. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to grab a quick call from James in Newtown. Hi, James. You're on the air. 
Hey, guys. Um, James uh, started to touch on a, on, a, on a point that I was thinking when I was listening to the beginning part of the show, was that early early on, music was really an art, an art form, and it was a, way, a method of expression. I mean, live uh, concerts and people would, would, would go see that, and they were artists trying to express themselves. You're talking and like we, in the 70s and... Maybe, well, even earlier than that. And then and we 70s. get into the recorded music era. And now we've got into the streaming and online era, uh, era, and it's an industry in and of itself. And the beast must be fed. You know, iTunes must have new uh, content all of the time. Um, and I, I make an analogy to, say, the stock market, where back in when it originally was uh, f- formed was uh, an efficient way to allocate capital to businesses that needed it. And now it's become an industry in and of itself, and we have to have new and innovative financial products. And so now we're get, musically we're getting like the credit default swaps of music. So we we just need to. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. So much more. Although the beast always had to be fed, right? The yeah. beast had to be fed in the '60s and the '70s. And 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 I don't know. I mean, first of all, I love that analogy. But I mean, you know, if you look back to the realities of the '60s and '70s, uh, and even early '80s, here's what happened when the beast had to be fed. On a long and lonesome highway. East of Omaha, you can listen to the engine moaning out his one note song. You can think about the woman or the girl you knew the night before. But your thoughts will soon be wandering the way they always do. When you're riding 16 hours and there's nothing there to do And you don't feel much like riding You just wish the trip was through I take everything good I said about classic <laughs> rock and roll back Actually, I wish we had Facebook Live in here just uh, to capture the squint on James's face uh, during that time. <laughs> and I, I think that's a little bit of Teach Out's point, James, is that for this, you know, jazz effectively had to be driven underground and, and, and bluegrass and folk and, like, all kinds of things had to be extinguished in this sort of, like, dinosaur-like comet attack, you know, that was rock music, that, that everything had to give way to it, but, but to what? Well, I think it was driven by the commercial, the, the commercial industry that had developed by then, and so it becomes something that's way beyond any sort of sense of cultural sort of emergence. That some that there's an artist with something to say, who's got something really special. That it, it, I mean, it, 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 the trajectory has been on that way the whole time. That as something as rock developed a, an identity that was great enough that it really it, it it really drew in a large amount of money, then you you'd go in that direction. And I think that there isn't that much of an opportunity then for things that are really different or something that's going to take a different direction. But also, one of the fascinating things to me is that I mean. Even awful things are like time <laughs> time marks. You're like setting markers. up our next segment, but go ahead, keep doing it. <laughs> it's, like you, it's like the soundtrack of your life kind of thing, that, that same principle, that you hear these things and you suddenly realize that they do place a certain mark in, oh, wow, that I recognize that. 
All right, so that might be a good place for us to pause. We're not gonna, we're not done with this topic, not by any means. We have like another place we want to go. I do want to mention that on Facebook Live, go to uh, the Colin McEnroe show page. I can't believe I signed up for all this music to be playing in my headphones for the, this entire show. But anyway, go to Facebook, uh, go to the Colin McEnroe show page, or you can go to my personal page too. It's there too. You can see what's going on in the control room. I don't even want to know what's going on in the control room at this point. I can guarantee you, it's not pretty. I just, uh, first of all, uh, joining me in studio today for the news are Rebecca Castellani, uh, James Hanley, and John Dankosky. John Dankosky coming off, off the bench uh, because Vivian Martin is unwell. But John Dankosky was, once we decided we were going to do this thing, it was insane not to do it without John anyway because I work with John and I know what, how he thinks about music, and it's very amusing. So, um, <laughs> I mean, in a good way. Um, the two, two points that kind of didn't really get made in that last segment, I'll just quickly make them. Um, Tucker Ives brought over this um, essay by Chuck Glosterman, who was saying that basically what will happen is maybe, you know, that uh, like 75 years from now, one artist will stand for all of rock, just the way John Sousa stands for all of March music, you know, and, and you know, that the conversation and like if we're unlucky, it'll be Bob Seger or, you know, uh, it'll probably be like Led Zeppelin or something. And that'll be what rock music was. Um, uh, the other thing that one th- I just want to come back to the point of curation, because I think one thing that is we're really glancing off of is that notion that music is, is experienced at minimum two ways. One of them is volitionally and one of them isn't, right? You're listening, uh, and these days you can curate things right down to a point where, like, you know, that my significant other likes certain bands that I don't like, but, like, I put together a title, a playlist, so if we're going to listen to a Loggins and Messina song, it'll be one I picked out, you know? <laughs> so, um, so um, you know, so that's, it's down to that level. But we still have the experience of the radio, which is you're dialing around, you know, and suddenly... Don't Stop Believing comes on, you know, and if you can't get the other person in the car to turn it off, you're going to have to listen to it. Um, and that's a little bit also. But music was experienced that way so much more in the past. It's almost it, it's almost a vestigial thing that it, that still happens. Well, and sometimes the only time I hear some of the songs that we're talking about, I, I go to the grocery store on a Sunday morning and it's amazing what plays at the stop and shop. And I'll think, well, that's interesting. You know, you'll hear you'll hear the Eagles. You'll hear, hear Bob Seger. Everyone's, I remember hearing a Tom Waits song in stop and shop once and I thought, you got some pretty good taste here at Stop why, and Shop. I like what I'm hearing. Yeah. Why do I think there's a big public relations company behind that who's oh, yes. figured out that people buy more food when they're listening to that? But not Tom, no, Tom Waits doesn't want to make you eat more. No, so, it just it makes uh, me want to drink beer at the end yes, of the bar. Exactly. Which is awesome. So, um, so we want, I wanted to just sort of add uh, as a little button to the conversation we've been having. So uh, GQ recently, and I stole this idea from Slate Culture Gabfest, I should admit that, but GQ recently did an essay about the making of, an oral history of the making of what they regard as the worst song of all time. And it actually does sometimes make number one on other people's lists of the worst song of all time. Uh, so without further ado, further ado, we will play that song. Stage. They call us 
Okay, this song has in it things designed to get at least two of the three, three people on the panel angry. Uh, and I know John's backstory, and I'll come to it eventually. But I was listening to it, and I was thinking, this is the kind of thing that will make James angry, too, because to steal an idea from uh, Willa Paskin, who was on the show the other day, she was comparing saying that Mr. Robot was in certain ways, like, an, like your, your iPhone that has an I hate Apple ringtone. It's like, <laughs> make up your mind. Uh, and, and so there's a little bit of that, too, that this is about corporation games and the constantly changing corporation names. But this is so obviously and so much more so than, say, Janis Joplin's Pearl, the work of a corporation. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's, I don't know, I, I, I have some sort of, I think I've developed some sort of thing that I kind of shut this out when I hear this. It's like, like I, I detect it very quickly and sort of like I'm, I'm thinking something else and I'm in a different, different place. Jedi mind control. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it just is such a... Um, Antibodies, it, it, I think, it's something, it's something physical, yes. It's, it's something <laughs> physical you feel about it. It's the sort of reaction I have to sort of, you know, it, like movies that are in their ninth sequel which has long ago lost its steam, but they're desperately trying to resurrect the elements of it. It's kind of like a series of elements in the in the song that you. It's actually pretty easy to shut out. I think, um, Rebecca. I don't know. I, when I was sort of considering all this, I John and I even had a little discussion about this the other day. I don't think this is the worst song ever. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> just, it that was my one possible ally in the room. Were you watching it sounds like face? a jingle for Toys R Us. <laughs> like it's kids like jumping in the aisles. Like it just, yeah, I don't know. I can't really defend this really on any level. It's terrible. Okay. All right. So then, so John, one of the arguments that you make is context is important here. Sure. Well, look, if you, if you think about this as a song by itself, it's a terrible song. If you think about it, just is. I mean, there's just no way about it. You could think of this as a sellout song because this is a song by remnants of a band that was a psychedelic rock band that stood for uh, a, a true counterculture in the 1960s, right. and it now has come, come to this. Um, you could love this song because there's a part of you that loved that, that counterculture Jefferson Airplane, and you can never quite, you know, ever say no to anything that Grace Slick ever sings. I, I told Colin, I think the song from the 1980s that this shares the most DNA with, and we'll get back to yes, is Owner of a Lonely Heart, another terrible song filled with terrible 80s synthesizer uh, sounds, also a Billboard number one hit, also an attempt by a kind of flagging prog rock band to get a number one hit, and it was, and, and it was a big hit at the time. I have a soft spot for that record for some reason, even though I should think, it, think of it as Yes's sellout record, because there was a little bit of it that, that I loved, because I loved those guys, and I wanted them to, I don't know, make a couple bucks before it all came crashing down. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that's just like a, it's like a personal nostalgia because it's a, it's a milestone for you and you, exactly. so you remember it that way. And I think that that's attractive to corporations too when they're thinking of doing these things because they're trying to get you in a different mindset. Absolutely. It's kind of like soften you, softening you up at Stop and Shop, you know, that, that you play certain types of music. And there are all kinds of examples of, of how music is used that way. But the, this issue of sort of, you know, triggering something of your memory, I, I mean, my thought when I, uh, when I hear something like that, I think, well, you know, I, I, I really delve through my old albums, actually, and play a, an old original album, and then it sort of has a fulfilling quality 
of like, wow, th- it's not now, but this was what my childhood was like. This is what my teenage years were like, you know, and it really gives me a feeling that, wow, isn't that amazing that I can listen to that album and have that feeling again? Um, but it, 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 the, the later iterations where the touchstones are sort of thrown off, it just, you know, I, I kind of just shut it out. I don't... So, Rebecca, I saw you do that Spider-Man thing with your hand. That means you have something you want to say. I I just think there's a big difference between... We're talking about nostalgia and different songs representing things for you. But for me, I can totally tap into some of the nostalgia of the songs that are actually good. But for songs like We Built This City, it just makes me think, I wish that hadn't happened. Like, that is a blemish on the history of American music. It's just not good. It's like it was done by some sort of computer that that sort of put together certain elements. I get why, you know, corporations would want to tap into the certain nostalgia. But if it's a song that's actually good, you get that universality in addition Mm -hmm. to the nostalgia as opposed to this is a very small, maybe deranged group of people Mm -hmm. are going to enjoy this song. But millions and millions of people bought the record. I mean, there's something, somebody liked the song. It wasn't just because it was jammed down our throats. And 15,000 people will be singing this song and humming it to themselves for the rest of the day. Absolutely. Millions and millions of people still buy Led Zeppelin albums and right. Beatles albums. I don't Those think albums that, withstand. Let's grab a quick That's call from uh, John here in Woodstock. Hi, John. You're not actually at Woodstock right now, right? No, I'm that would be, at work in, <laughs> in Hartford. I'm not at that Woodstock anyway. <laughs> too bad. Um, it is too bad. So I have two two things about that song. When I saw you were going to talk about it today, I had to call in. First of all, when I back in when it was a hit, I was uh, a music director at a large college radio station in the state. And when we did our pledge drive, one of the DJs, wasn't getting many calls until he decided that he would play that song nonstop until people pledged money. <laughs> and it was successful. I bet. So the other part of it, though, is that as much as I kind of despise that song and all it stood for, being very much on the you know, fringe and into the alternative scene and college radio at the, back in the 80s, over the years, I've really mellowed on it. And there's something really melancholy, and maybe it's just my personal history, as, as somebody already mentioned, but... You know, that, that change about don't you remember, you know, that part of the song there, it just it hits the right notes for me, and it, and it, it really works. And so I don't turn it off anymore when it, re- you know, once in a great while comes into my ears. And it's, it's very strange. It's a strange feeling that something that I despise so much suddenly means a little bit more. Um, that's actually uh, a beautiful way of talking about it. I, actually, thanks for that call. That's really great. We've got a bunch of other calls here. I don't know if I can get to them. I mean, I do think one of the problems, one of the things we react to is what the critic Dana Stevens calls bombast, right? There's a way in which the reach of a song is one of the things that thrusts it into the offensive category. And the, the one that I struggle with personally, because I know it's on a lot of people's worst song lists, and it's at the top of a lot of people's worst song list, is the song MacArthur Park. And now MacArthur Park has two things I understand going against it. First of all, the first version was by Richard Harris, and that's going to be a problem. I mean, it just is, all right? And, and, and then, you know, someone left a cake out in the rain and stuff. You know, I get that. That's kind of a weird thing. But, um, but it's by Jimmy Webb, you know, and I just, I just sort of feel like Jimmy Webb couldn't have written a bad song, and I kind of actually like the Donna Summer version of it a little bit. And, uh, but it has, a, it has these aspirations, too. You're, you're, <laughs> you should see Dan Kroski's <laughs> He feels like I've just sentenced myself that I've lost all credibility. Jimmy Webb couldn't have possibly written a bad song. No possible way. No, of course he could. Everyone can write a bad song. There are plenty of bad songs written by great artists. It happens all the time. I guess that's true. They're under pressure to write them. Yeah. I mean, they've got to write them if they want the checks to come 
come in, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. But I think that there's aspiration and there's bombast, and they're they're closely linked, and they overlap at certain points. Well, points. And, yeah. and again, one of the things the 16-year-old me was drawn to by Yes was I, I loved the bombast. I loved the reach of, of music that was outside of my grasp to, to be able to play. I listened to Mike Oldfield's Tubular, Tubular Bells over and over, and it's the most bombastic thing in the history of the world. It's, and, but, it's, <laughs> <laughs> but, it's because, but it's because I was drawn to that. That, that, was, that bombast was important to me. For a time. Also, you were possessed. I, yeah, I was going to say, there's another <laughs> connection to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I still I come to those stairs whenever I go to D.C. Right. and I look down and, I, and the music and plays in my head. The yeah. bells play in my head. <laughs> I'd love to take a, I'm going to take one more call and then we have to we really have to break. We're running out of time. This this show, which began, I was very worried about it for most of the day. It's been one of the most fun shows we've done all year. So uh, here's uh, Dave. You get to wrap up this conversation, Dave. All right. When my son was a little kid. He would go to bed, he'd play We Built This City, and then the next song that was on the album, Sarah, and then he'd back it up. And he'd do that until he went to sleep. Mm. He now lives in San Francisco, works for Google, and he's as corporate as you can be. Right, so. <laughs> the thing is, corporate anesthesia. They, they actually put him on a bus to San Francisco when he was eight just to get him out of the house. All right, so we... That's, that's a good place to end right there. All right, we have to go. We're going to do some endorsements when we get back. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants, who, by coincidence, is having my baby. And by me, Kyone Wolf. I produced it in my Stu Stu studio. The part of Phil Curry was played by Billy Ray Cyrus and Vanilla Ice. Visit us on Facebook on the Colin McEnroe Show page. On Monday, the scramble scrambles back from the weekend. And now, <laughs> back to the notes. All right. So, um... So I don't know how many people got the Phil Collins joke there. Um, all right. We're going to uh, move on. We're going to do some recommendations. I'm sorry to the people who called up. A lot of these calls look really, really interesting. Um, and so Bruce and Chip and Fred and Nathaniel, you look really interesting, but I, there's no way I can get to you. So uh, we're going to do some recommendations. Uh, and so, I'll, James, I'll, you'll, you get us started. Uh, well, I'm absolutely entranced by a fascinating book right now by Peter Wollobin uh, called The Hidden Life of Trees which uh, trees are a particular passion of mine, seeing them as equity in the community, but also actually looking at the time scale of how a tree develops. Um, it's an absolutely riveting book. The other thing is, um, uh, speaking of cultural touchstones uh, at Cine Studio, we're showing Swiss Army Man tonight and tomorrow um, at 7.30 each night, which is totally off the wall. And uh, I guess I would tend to think of it as a provocation, uh, but something right, uh, right up the alley of people who look for something really different. And also we're showing um, uh, the NT Live, A View from the Bridge on Saturday and Richard II from The Globe on Sunday. Both amazing productions. All right. The guy who did the tree book, I'm pretty sure he was on, on point yeah. like yesterday. Was, yeah. yeah, And he sounded very much like uh, Christoph Wars. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he did, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Mr. Tarzan, it's nice you have these trees to swing from, but they may not be here much longer. <laughs> All right, go ahead. I have some music recommendations uh, from this year's Newport Folk Festival. I had the privilege oh. of going, and I go every year, and I love it. Uh, my top three I saw were Sun Little. Uh, he's an R&B soul performer that is absolutely fantastic. I highly recommend 
The Arcs, which is a new band uh, formed by Dan Arbach, who is the guitarist and vocalist of the Black Keys. And Father John Misty, who's been on the scene for a while, he is often problematic, often antagonistic. <laughs> yes. uh, not His stage presence was odd, um, but that being said, he's got some awesome songs that really uh, make you think and laugh, and I highly recommend. And then my other recommendation on another side of it, uh, given the increasing disparity of this election, is CBS's Brain Dead. It just ended, and it's ridiculous and funny and on point. It's created by Robert and Michelle King, who did The Good Wife. Um, and I highly recommend giving it a watch. It's political satire at its oddest. <laughs> All right. John Dankowski. Well, sometimes I forget, because I've been living in Connecticut for a while, that we have some of the really most talented people in the entire world living right here, and we get to see them and other people don't get to. So Mario Pavone is a bassist and composer uh, who's been part of the uh, the global jazz scene for forever. He's the first person I profiled when I came to WNPR back in 1994. Uh, he used to play with Thomas Chapin, the great saxophonist who passed away some years ago. I saw them play a number of times together. Well, he is at Real Artways tomorrow night with his accordion project called Street Songs. And it's a great band that, as he says, the inspiration was going to the drugstore for my aunts and my mother, hearing the various musics, Italian, Portuguese, Polish. I call it front stoop music, and much of it was based on the accordion. It's a big band with accordion, and it's a little bit edgy, and it's it's truly amazing. It's part of a three-night uh, jazz series of free music at Real Artways in Hartford. On Sunday as part of the series, a trio um, that includes Reggie Workman, Oliver Lake, and Andrew Cyril is playing together. In case you don't know those names, Reggie Workman played with John Coltrane at his Village Vanguard sessions. He's the real, real deal, and you get to see him for free in Hartford on Sunday. So I'm just telling you, jazz folks, even not you jazz folks, there's some real amazing musicians you can see in the next couple of days. All right. You just made Will K. Wilkins very, very happy. Um, so I'm going to uh, say that uh, Saturday Night Live has uh, added some cast members and some new writers. Um, two of the writers created a thing called Eagles are turning people into horses. Uh, it was an NYU student film. I'm just going to recommend that you watch it. Uh, I don't know what these guys are going to do at Saturday Night Live, but this is, uh, I, I think, a pretty original piece of comedy in, in terms of, and, and it's also funny, which is helpful, obviously. Um, the last thing you always hear on our show is Grayson Hugh. Grayson Hugh will be performing tonight with his brand new band. He's got a big band. He put together a big rock band. Uh, they're going to be at uh, Black Eyed Sally's tonight in Hartford at uh, 9 p.m. So uh, go if you love this little jingle that uh, Grayson wrote for us that he does at the end of the show. I mean, he actually does wonderful, wonderful music uh, that far exceeds that jingle, believe it or not. Uh, what could ever do that? So while John is uh, going to be at Real Artways with Mario Pavone on Saturday night, uh, I am going to... But for the last four years, once a year, I've performed with CT Improv. Uh, they have a brand new theater in downtown Hartford. It's uh, I can't wait to... Uh, play there because the acoustics are a lot better than where they used to uh, play. Not that you really need to hear every word that I say, although my job usually is to drag them into the toilet. They're, you know, they're kind of a well-scrubbed group of improv performers, and I tend to. So don't bring your children to this, and if anybody goes to my church, please don't attend this. <laughs> I am going to talk about stuff that... Uh, just for the fun of making them do the uh, improv about it. So I've got a couple more seconds left. I, can, I, I, I hate doing these long lists of like, events and stuff like that, but I guess I will also mention that on Monday um, I will be uh, taping on Unorthodox, which is a, a podcast about Jewish life. I'm, of course, renowned. Uh, for my Jewish life. No, they have this thing called uh, the Gentile of the Week. I'll be the Gentile of the Week. It'll be my second time there. Mark Oppenheimer hosts this podcast. Anyway, it's a live recording at the Jewish Community Center of Greater New Haven, which is in Woodbridge. I believe we started 7 p.m. I'm kind of doing this from memory, but I think we started 7 p.m., and I think uh, you... 
uh, somehow or other, get in touch with them and you can go. Uh, so, all right. I think that, <laughs> that completes the, bill, uh, the bulletin board. I do want to thank everybody who participated in today's show, and we really did have all kinds of little mishaps along the way, but um, I really, this has been a tremendous amount of fun. So, uh, literature scholar Rebecca Castellani, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And uh, James Hanley, all of those movies sound great. Uh, I hope I can get to some of them this weekend anyway, uh, although my schedule's busy as well. <laughs> and John Dankosky, you saved us. You came off the bench. Rock and roll! And you got to, <laughs> you got to talk about Yes! Um, Maybe we do like a whole show about that. All right. So Grayson Hugh, who you're about to hear, we're going to give him a little extra time uh, right now. Grayson Hugh, Hugh is live tonight with his brand new band. I think they're called the Moon Dogs at Black Eyed Sally's in Hartford. I see you on the radio. from St. Francis, past the conservatory, up the street from the seminary. You know, it's a very, very, very cool place to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> it's cozy, like a Cracker Barrel. Yeah, we all be laughing, talking, joking, talking about this and talking about that. And talk about everything as a matter of about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.